All right, John chapter 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is the life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would compass about us, pour out thy spirit, that we might behold the wondrous words of great comfort and love that thou hast set before us. 
Open our eyes that we might see Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, the title of today's sermon is Christ in Christ's Stead. And it has kind of a double meaning because the meaning that I want us to appreciate here is this overview that is set before us here in terms of Christian taking Christ's place in the world. But they don't do that unless Christ be in them. So that's the double meaning uh, with respect to the title here. So I want us to again remind ourselves what a comforting time it is for the disciples here, this great setting of intimacy um, with the Lord. Um, there is a lot of, I think, uncertainty in their heart. They don't understand what is happening. They don't understand what is going to happen. The Lord has told them what to expect, what things would befall him. He has told them a number of times that he would need to go to Jerusalem. When he was there, he would be betrayed. He would be abused. He would be crucified. And then he would raise uh, from the dead. And uh, so I think they understood portions of it, but didn't really apprehend it. Because when in the next scene here in John chapter 18, when the, they're going to come to take him and arrest him, naturally Peter's going to try to intervene again and stop this process from happening, which he'd already once done before when the Lord had laid this out clearly to them, which we read about in the book of Matthew, when the Lord said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of men. And so they clearly didn't understand what was supposed to happen here. And so they've just completed what we refer to as the Last Supper. And the Lord has told them that someone would betray them, the one in whom he dipped the sop. And they're all like, well, is it, is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? So they didn't understand what was taking place here. We saw that Judas departed and they didn't connect the dots to the dipping of the sop and him departing. The Lord had just told them that. And they thought, well, maybe he was going out to go buy something for the feast. They don't understand what's going on. Peter lifts himself up as loving the Lord amongst, uh, above all of the other brethren, and the Lord says, no, you will deny me three times. So clearly there's a lot of uncertainty going on in their hearts, and we can appreciate here how the Lord is uh, let them into this, um, this heavenly um, scene where he is praying directly to the, thoughter, to the Father, and they can hear that. And so they um, are certainly going to be comforted and benefit from that, just as we should be today, because these words have been recorded, certainly for our benefit. Um, undoubtedly, you know that the Lord did go up many times and pray uh, along with the Father, go up into a mountain and do that. And so here he is, right with his, um, with his uh, beloved disciples, praying that they would appreciate and understand that the things that the Lord is conferring upon them and he's conferring things upon them that the Father has conferred upon himself. And we should appreciate as we read through this that all of these things proceed originally from the Father to the Son, and then the Son confers them unto us. In verses 1 and 5, he speaks about glorifying the Son, and then the Son is going to pass that glory unto us. The Father has given him power. The Father has given men to the Son. There were yours. You have given them to me. And you can appreciate the unity because then he says the things that are mine are the things that are thine as well. And so these things are plainly stated here in terms of the Father giving the Son uh, people. And so the disciples have, are told here rather plainly that they know that whatever things were given Christ were given to him of the Father. And we should appreciate in particular the manifestation or the uh, proceeding of love that comes from the Father 
to the saints as well as from the Father uh, to the Son and then to the saints. And so if you can imagine this wonderful trinity that in terms of love, as you're, when you typically think of the trinity, you think of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But in terms of the love triangle that he sets up here, it's Father, Son, and the, the saints. And so with respect to love proceeding from the Father, for the scripture tells us that God is love, you see that in John 15, 9, he says, the love that the Father has for the Son is the same as the love the Son for the saints. And the love that the Father has for the saints is the same as the Father's love for the Son. So we are in equality in terms of God's love for us that he has for his Son with whom he is one with. So the love that is within the Godhead is in fact extended and included in the love he has for the saints. It is all one love at the same level, the same intensity, and uh, the same duration because he says that he's loved us from before the foundation of the world, uh, which is what he says he's loved the son as. So this love proceeds from the Father and it is inclusive of all of the saints. Christ here, he says in verse 11 and verse 13 that he's going to join his Father. He says, I come to thee. So we can appreciate that he could only join the Father if he's successful in redeeming his saints, if he's successful in going to the cross. And when he has um, expiated the sins of the, of the saints, then the Lord will raise him and sit him up victorious on high. So this is the second place in here where he is uh, having us to appreciate that he will be successful. He will be victorious over sin and death. And he will overcome and he will sit in his father's throne and he will rule and reign. Now, the Christians are going to take his place in the world. We know of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 where he sends us out into the world to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them whatsoever things that he has taught them about himself. And so you'll see that also in here as well. So the Christians are to take his place in the world. And um, the Lord tells us in John chapter 14, verse 12, in that context of Christians going out in the world, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go to the Father. Now, how is it that the saints do greater works than Christ did himself? Well, they do greater works in the context that Christ is replaced by the multitudes of Christians that he scatters throughout the world, and those that are indwelled and regenerated through the Holy Ghost, and then they go out in the world and they preach the gospel, and it's through this process of preaching the gospel that people are regenerated. So while Christ was in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the regions there around about defined by a geographic reason, region, Christians are not defined by a geographic reason, region, region in so much as they go out to the whole world. And you see the beginning of this in the book of Acts where you see in chapter 2 after the pouring out of the, of the Holy Ghost at the Pentecost that in, uh, on one day 3,000 souls were saved in one day. And in chapter 4 you have 5,000 believers, again, on one occasion. So in a very short time in the book of Acts, you have 8,000 Christians in one city getting ready to go out into the world in obedience to what the Lord has said, um, that they would go out and um, preach the gospel. Now, I want us to appreciate that the, the word apostles here, 
in Acts chapter 1, it talks about that. And he says here the, um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Nevertheless, they're going to go out into Jerusalem, into Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what they're commissioned to do, and that's indeed what they're going to do. God working in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Something I'm going to talk about in a, in a few minutes here. But let's keep in mind here that sometimes... Um, that process of doing things, uh, of God working in us, can be a little painful. And so it was through persecution, you'll recall, that the Lord sent the Christians out of Jerusalem, and they uh, ended up in Antioch and other parts about the Mediterranean region. So sometimes that process can be painful, but nevertheless, it is, an, it is in obedience to God. Christians will go out. They've been told to go out, and by golly, they will. Now, whereby we can appreciate that Christians will physically take place Christ in this world, we should appreciate that that is still the work of God. Again, God working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He works in us that these things would take place. We're reminded in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. So we read here in the scriptures that we are his workmanship and he works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the challenge to us and the reality of the things that we face in our heart is that we are to be obedient to God's calling both outwardly and inwardly that we would have a sympathetic heart to do the things that the Lord would have us to do. So what do I mean by that? You read in the scriptures that you know you're supposed to do something, but you don't necessarily want to do it, but you do it anyway. So outwardly, you're being um, obedient to the Lord's call to do something. But what you want is you want to have a joyful heart when you're doing that. You want to fully agree that that's what he wants you to do, and that that is indeed a good thing to do, and that's a work that he has ordained that you should do. So with respect to the Lord working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, we make note that that immediately follows verse 12 of uh, Philippians chapter 2, where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we can acknowledge and appreciate that there's always a struggle between the flesh and the spirit because the flesh does not savor the things of God. The flesh does not want to do the things that the Lord would have us to do. The flesh wants to, wants to satiate things that are pleasurable to itself, and the spirit, nevertheless, would desire to serve Christ. And so with, with my mind, you know, I want to serve the Lord, but yet with the flesh, I find not that which is required to do it because sin dwells in the flesh. So uh, that's part of the, the Christian walk that we would go out and with an obedient and loving heart, do the things that the Lord would have us um, to do. So consistent with God's hand in sending the apostles out, we read in Acts chapter one that um, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. The Lord is getting ready to leave here in John 17. Until the day the Lord was taken up. After that, he, Christ, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, what does the word apostle mean? In this broadest context, it simply means to be sent. So we have disciples in the scripture and we have apostles in the scripture. So the apostles were these 11 here whom the Lord is going to send. Uh, Peter, he doesn't send very far, does he? Paul, who describes himself as not the least of the apostles, but one born out of time, is sent all over the Mediterranean region. So that's the more um, common um, 
understanding of it that you'd be sent and actually physically go someplace. So last week we had a missionary who came here, whom I made note that the God sent him here, that he would minister unto us. This we see in Romans chapter 10 that I read last week. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right, that's a promise. How then shall they call on him, that would be Christ, in whom they have not believed? Well, they can't do that. And how shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? They can't do that either. To understand and appreciate who Christ is requires specific revelation. You've got to be taught who he is. The gospel has to be preached to you. And how shall they hear without a preacher? They can't. How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. That is a something that is true from Genesis chapter 3 onward in the scripture. The gospel has always been preached by somebody sent. The first individual that was sent was the Son of God. We, I think I mentioned that last Sunday with respect to Daniel Parks and being sent. The Son of God came after the fall into the garden and was sent to preach the gospel to Adam and Eve, and he preached it to them. Uh, and from that point on, it has always been somebody sent. Adam obviously preached the gospel to his children, Cain and Abel. One heard, one did not hear. And then to Seth, and then so on, the gospel has been passed down uh, amongst men. So, in general here, um, somebody who is sent would include, in the broadest context, all Christians. That doesn't mean you need to, be, need to be sent across the world. As I mentioned, Peter was only sent to Jerusalem. He went to a few places, but he was there. So wherever you happen to be working, the Lord will work it out that if he wants an individual to hear the gospel, he will send you to somebody at work, and you will interact with and uh, preach to those whom the Lord puts in your life. Not everybody needs to go to the Caribbean. That doesn't work. There are, there's plenty of ministry work to be done here in California. I know that doesn't surprise anybody here. Um, so... All saints are chosen by God, and all saints bear a responsibility to share the good news. So, to that end, to the end that Christians, those in whom Christ dwells, take Christ's place on this earth, we can appreciate this ministry of reconciliation that he has given us. Ministry was given from the Father to the Son, and the Son confers it upon us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 20, it says, God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, hath given to us, given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So what he's given to the Father, he's given to us, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, but hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. He has given to the saints the gospel that they would then go out and preach in the, in the world. God is in Christ, and Christ is in us. And the Lord sets that before us in verse 21 of John 17. He says, That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, the Father's in the Son, and I in thee, I am in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So the Father's in the Son, and the Son is in us, and we are to go out and preach the word. Now, verse 20 again, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. The Christian is an ambassador for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in 
Christ's stead, in his place. We are part of this ministry. This ministry has been gone, has gone from Christ now, who's been going about for three and a half years preaching the gospel. We are in his stead. We preach in his stead. We beseech in his stead. Be ye reconciled to God. So that is what, this is a ministry that has been given to the saint in place of Christ. Christ is taken up, and then in his place are little Christs going out into the world, reconciling the world to God um, through Christ. So we see here in John uh, chapter 17 the things that were given to the Son, who's the epitome of an apostle because he was sent of the Father. He was sent of the Father, and he accomplished everything that the Father had set before him to do. Those things that were given to him by the Father, the Son now gives to the saint here in John chapter 17. Words that the Father gave to the Son, the Son gives to us. Joy that, was, that he had with the Father is the joy that he would have us to have. As he was separated from the world by the Father, so too are we separated from the world. As he was sent, so too are we sent. As he is sanctified, so too are we sanctified. As he was given glory, this glory he gives to us. And as the Father loved him, so too does he love us. And the Father loves us. So positionally and practically from the Father's perspective, the saint is to be on the earth what Christ was. For he goes to be with the Father through the cross. Now we read here in John, uh, I'm in John 17 and verse 8 and 14, that Christ gives to the saints words that were given to him by the Father. And this is in the context of Jesus going out into the world and preaching the words that the Father gave him. You know that he said of himself that he never did his own will, but the will of his Father did he do. And he spake not of himself, but he spake of, of the Father. And so he sends us out into the world with words, I'll put that in quotes, to preach to people, to the gospel. In Matthew chapter 10, in the context of him sending out a number of disciples out into the area, um, he tells them, he says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless and doves. The Lord ever appreciates the hostility with which the world will receive the words that he has given us to preach. He says, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in, the in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. So we should appreciate that the words that were given to us will be words that the Lord will call to our mind, bring up from our heart, that we will speak and share with the, word, with the world when the time comes. We should never be speaking of ourselves. We should always be speaking of the Spirit, speaking of God, God's words that were given to us. Now, I want us to appreciate that there's a double meaning here in terms of what the Lord gave us. He gave us words, plural, and then it also says um, in one of the verses, I think 14, that he gave us thy word. And so there's a double meaning here in terms of what the saint is given. Absent the Spirit of God, which is Christ, we should not have an appreciation for what those words mean. We would not appreciate the truth of them, the import of them, and the need for people to hear them. In verse 14, he says, I have given them thy word. 
Well, what is thy word? What is the word of God? It's Christ himself. And so this, of course, happens when he breathed on them and they received the Holy Ghost. In verse 14, it's the word logos, which we know is from John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos, and the word logos was with God, and the word logos was God. So we can appreciate the relationship between that word logos in particular uh, and Christ himself. In verse uh, 8, it's a different word. It's the word um, rima, and it's also plural. Words were given to us in verse 8, spoken words. So words that were spoken to Christ from the Father are words that he's given uh, the saints that we would share those in the world, world, and we have the ability and the power to do that because he has given us the word of God, which is Christ himself. Now, building on that, saints have joy, or that there the saints are to have the joy that Christ had. That's in verse um, 13. And now I come, come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Christ's joy fulfilled in ourselves. Now, we would certainly appreciate that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Um, so what joy did Christ have in this world? And you see, he came unto his own, And his own received him not. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Um, He was despised. He was rejected. He was laughed at. He was mocked, and he was abused. And after all his preaching, nobody believed on him because they all were scattered in the garden. How many people were at the cross? Just a couple of women were there. Um, When people did pursue him, they pursued him for material gain or how they might profit in the flesh. Recall they tried to make him a king after he had made all that bread. People do the same thing today. We vote for people that promise to give us um, things. So what joy did Christ have and when did he have that joy? Well, the joy that he had would be the joy associated with union and fellowship with the Father. And so we can appreciate when he says in Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was this joy of coming back in uh, perfect harmony with and fellowship and glory with the Father and with the saints that he would purchase with his blood That joy is something that was set before him um, as something that he would appreciate and realize and apprehend when he had accomplished that process. But nevertheless, he speaks of a joy he presently has here in John 17, and that is the joy that he has in fellowship with his Father. Our deacon read for us in Psalm chapter 16 several verses, two of which or three of which which are uh, pertinent. And this, he says, I have said, this would be Christ, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth, my flesh also shall rest in hope. So the question and application to us is, have we always set the Lord before ourselves? Or do we let things get in our way? Do we have other interests in this world that we think will bring us joy and satisfaction? Um, And I know the answer to those questions. The answer is yes, we do. No, we do not always have the uh, joy of the Lord because we do not always set him before us. We get distracted and we think other things will bring us pleasure because they do bring pleasure to the flesh, but not to the spirit. And whatever pleasure the flesh might have, it is purely temporal. 
In verse 16 of Psalm 6, uh, verse 11 of Psalm 16, he says, Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Not just joy, but fullness of joy. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures evermore. There really is no joy to be had in this world absent Christ. Like I said, it's all strictly um, distraction. It is all fleeting distraction that appeals to the flesh and not to the spirit. I mean, if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what Solomon says. He set all of these physical pleasures in front of himself, withheld nothing from his flesh, and it was vanity. All is vanity is what he um, concludes. Uh, people frequently ask me what I'm going to do when I retire. Oh, do you have plans to do this? you have plans to do that? you want to travel? you want to do all these things? And I'm like, no, I want to stay home. I want to be with my beloved wife. I want to spend time in fellowship with the saints, people that um, the Lord hasn't put on my heart, people that I love. So for me, happiness <clears throat> and joy is in Christian uh, fellowship. And so, no, I don't, <clears throat> I don't want to travel. There's, I don't have these plans to do anything. And so we appreciate that there is joy in union and fellowship with God. Now, I want to make a distinction there. Everybody here is united with God through Christ. If you're not feeling joy, it's because you're not fellowshipping with him. You're not uh, prayerfully uh, meditating on God's word, where he has placed truth, he has revealed his will in his Bible. And uh, perhaps you're not walking in obedience to him, in which case you're in union with him, but you're walking out of step, you're not in fellowship with him. And so I think every one of us has experienced this process of do sin, do, uh, uh, well, it's all sin. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. So when we're not faithful to the Lord, then we are not walking in fellowship with him, and we do not have the joy that the Lord would have us to have and the joy that we can have when we return to him in obedience. He says that, if you love me, keep my words. So walk in obedience, and you'll appreciate and feel the love that he has for you. And again, you will, uh, one, uh, you'll enjoy that wonderful um, joy that is known through union and fellowship with him. So with respect to this world, it's nothing but frustration, depression, anxiety, and heaviness of heart. So if you find yourself sliding down that slope, you know it's because you're not walking in fellowship with the Lord. You're not having the, the joy that he has set um, before us. Now, 1 John chapter 1, 3 through 4, the Lord says this um, rather succinctly. He says, that we have seen, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. In other words, the things of Christ. That ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So time in the word, thinking and meditating upon the Lord, reading about what things they have set before us, what things the Lord has set before us, will make our joy be full. In John 15, 11, the Lord says, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy, the joy that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father, that, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. So in the broadest context, in terms of the words that he's spoken unto us, it's simply the Bible that we would know God's plan for us. Now, verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. 
Now, I've just shared with us about what things we can enjoy in this world, or rather not enjoy. What we, our joy is to be had in union and fellowship with God. So I don't know about you, but I will speak for myself. I would rather be with the Lord than to be on this earth. And one of the commentators uh, makes a point. He's saying there were three people that prayed to be taken out of the world in the scripture. Moses, Elijah, and Jonah all prayed to be taken out of the world. And God did not answer that prayer. The answer was no. You may not be taken out of the world. God has work for everyone to do, and you will stay here until such time as he has accomplished his will in your life. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, we see this set before us. The apostle writing, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Um, Obviously, this is owned by Christ. But if I live in the flesh... That is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh, which is more needful for you. Supposing Christ had been removed from the world when he was on the, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Supposing he had been taken there. He would not have accomplished all of the things that the Lord had for him to do, particularly the redemption of these saints. So there would be no salvation if he had not remained on here until he had accomplished everything that the Lord had set before him to do. John 17, he says that he has done it, meaning he calls those things which be not as though they were because he's going to, in fact, accomplish them. So the application to us is obvious. Whatever good works the Lord has prepared for us, we will remain here until we accomplish them Until we hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Those will be sweet words to hear, and we will know that when we hear them, that we have accomplished what the Lord has set before us to accomplish. So, until then, we will stay here, and we pray that the Lord keep us from the evil one. Now, the evil one in the broad context here means not just Satan, but all of his uh, agents, all of his minister, ministries of, uh, ministers of evil. Basically, that includes everyone that is not a saint. The Lord had warned his disciples in, in uh, Matthew chapter 10, which I'd already read here, about what the people will do um, to him. They will you know, scourge you in their synagogues, brought before governors, and they will... Um, deliver you to councils, and they're obviously going to beat them and uh, abuse them in, in many ways. So the Lord is praying that God would, would keep them from um, the evil one. Um, in a broader context, that also includes the Lord keeping us from all the pits and the snares and the gins and the devices of Satan and his children of disobedience. So there's a lot of things that the saint needs to be kept from. And Christ, while he was here... He kept his saints um, safe, even when they're in the garden. Of, excuse me, even yeah, when he goes to the garden in chapter 18, when they're uh, to be, um, when he's to be arrested, all of the saints uh, go free. All of his disciples go free. None of them are cast into prison. Um, in verse 16, he says, "Here they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." Christ indeed was not of this world. He was from above. We read in 1 Corinthians 15:47. The first man is of the earth, earthy, and the second man is the Lord 
from heaven. And we too have our thoughts and our loves and our affections set on high. Our conversation is in heaven. In other words, our government is in heaven. That's whom we answer to. That's who we, res- who we respond to. Our conversation is heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the saints have been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We have different priorities. We have different interests. We have different affections. And the world hates us. It does not like the things that we are interested in. It does not um, like us because we are the salt and the light in the world, Christ working in us. Um, And as such, as salt and light in the world, the saint is actually condemning to the world. The saint is condemning to the world. The the world hates us because we are identified with Christ whom the world hates. He tells us that the world hates him. He knows the world hates him. We see what the world did to him. The world, by wicked hands, uh, crucified him. And so God has given us his words. We take those words out into the world, and the world hates the words of God. Why do the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing? They don't want to have anything to do with God. They don't want God telling them what to do. So the saints, the Christians in this world, are set apart by God, and we are a demonstrative witness to the great division whereby God divides the sheep from the goat. And we have seen a lot of division in this world in the last several years. It's becoming manifest that God is separating uh, peoples from each other. Um, Separates the sheep from the goats. He separates those that are on the narrow way from those that are on the broad way. And he separates those that are entering into the straight gate from those that are entering into the wide gate. The saint is a visible testimony of God's love and grace and mercy, which sinful men reject. They deny their need of it while they set their fleshy works, which God calls filthy rags before God as though they would merit his favor as a result of that. In Romans chapter 10, the Lord says that. He says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. So there's vessels of destruction, vessels of mercy, and the vessels of destruction hate the vessels of mercy. They don't think they deserve the mercy, nor do they think that they need the mercy. Uh, They themselves, the vessels for destruction. Um, Everybody here has talked to people that declare their own righteousness. They think they're good before God, and they get irritated and resentful at you because when you present the gospel of Christ as one of utter uh, mercy, and it's a gift from God, they don't like to hear that. They, um, they want to engage in works. It's very appealing to the flesh, and they hate you for it. Um, in verses 17 through 19 of John chapter 17, uh, we read, Sanctify them through thy word, excuse me, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. So as the Father has sent the Son into the world, so the saints are sent out by the Son. Now, Christ is the epitome of the apostle, as I said before, which means to be sent. As Christ is sanctified, so too are the saints sanctified. Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. He is separate from men. He has always been separate um, from men. 
he possesses two natures. He is both fully man and, and fully God. He is without sin. He did no sin, and in him was no sin. He was ever separated from this world, um, and in this world, uh, he is in this world, but he is not of this world. And the same thing is said of the saints here. They are not of the world. We have been separated and set apart under God. We are not of this world. We are in the world. He's telling you here. He's sending us into the world, but we are not of the world. We too, like him, are partakers of divine nature, although he is wholly divine. We are partakers of the divine nature, and we are set apart unto God. So we should understand sanctification, as it's said before here, in two, in two ways. Verse 19 is positional sanctification. We are chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And he says in verse 19, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. So the cross is in view here. How does God sanct- Christ sanctify himself? By going to the cross and being the offering for sin before he goes to be with the Father, willfully went to the cross and laid down his life. He says, I sanctify myself. We can appreciate the heart that he had to do that when he went to the cross by himself. He says that no man takes his life from him. He lays it down. He has the power to lay it down and to take it up again. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, we, talk, we read about how he made himself of no reputation. Christ made himself of no reputation, and Christ took upon him the form of a servant. Being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself. These are all things he did himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So when he did this, when he went to the cross, all the saints that were in him were um, crucified with him, buried with him, and raised with him. So this is a positional um, sanctification. So we should appreciate it from a positional perspective. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, we can appreciate that sanctification is just not doctrine. Sanctification is a person. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, But of him, of God, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. That's 1 Corinthians 1.30. So sanctification is a position we have in a person. Christ has made unto us sanctification. Now there's experiential or practical self uh, sanctification, which is where the Lord indwells you, you become a believer, and then God works on your heart to separate you from this world. You're given a new heart. You have different affections. He separates you from this world in terms of its corrupting influence, its fleeting, um, empty glory, and it's alluring world system and idolatrous ways. So in terms of the words that he has given you, the degree to which you employ those words and spend time in the word is the degree to which you are separated or sanctified from this word. So he says, thy word is truth, meaning the words of the Bible don't just contain truth, they are truth themselves. So your experiential sanctification is related to the degree to which you spend your time, again, in prayer and in God's word. In verse 20, he says, Neither pray I thee for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So these are wonderful words that God has set before us, telling us as clear as can be that he has said these things 
for your and my benefit as well. I'm not praying just for the 11 here, but I'm praying for all of the people that would believe on me through the preaching of the gospel. And so this is not the world inclusive. Again, it's only for believers. The non-believers are not individuals that God prays for. Let me rephrase that. The non-elect are not people that the Lord prays for. He prayed for me before I was a believer. But as a believer now, I appreciate the veracity and the comforting nature of these words. So the bottom line with respect to this morning is that we are united with God through Christ. We are separate from the world. We have been given God's word, the gospel, and we are sent out into the world as ambassadors to preach the gospel. As God conferred things upon his son Jesus, so too does Jesus confer those things upon the saints, that we would go out and be in his stead in this world, uh, preaching the gospel and exemplifying Christ himself. Amen.